Hey, what's up? Welcome to Forefront 360 Podcast, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. My name is Cody Schweikert. I'm your host, and uh, I'm joined with uh, three wonderful gentlemen today. Nate Mancini. Hello. Rich Christman. Howdy. And Jonathan O'Hare. Hey, guys. Hey, welcome, Sean. Um, glad you're all here, especially Sean. He's just so smiley. Just a just a good good dude to have around. I just gained warms a, my heart. a new name also. So that's, Jonathan. That's well, that is your full name, glad right? You're all here. Glad you're all here. That is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So Nate is because we're not laughing at his puns. He, he is forcing a robot to laugh at them. I do uh, my best. <laughs> Okay, this is good. Okay, so today uh, we're going to discuss the latest Forefront blog post entitled Timeless Stories in Good Theater, Revisiting the Crucible. So we're all going to chat about this and chime in because the the theme is pretty broad, uh, but the conversation really started with with Rich and his reflections on a couple of things. So Rich, give us us the uh, overview of this entry here. Well, I think a good place to start is the fact that uh, Sean, as uh, or Jonathan, as our uh, managing editor, <laughs> my asked formal me, name, yeah, formal name, asked me uh, a number of months ago, probably mm-hmm. almost a year ago, um, if I would be interested in writing a, like a multi-part series uh, regarding my interactions with theater as an art form. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do for a very short time. I used to do professional theater, and now I do very amateur theater as a high school theater director. But, um, so, you know, before, if any comments that I make about, uh, drama as an art form or about theater, just know my context, uh, coming into that. But, um, so I was thinking about what to write about as far as theater. I've done a few, uh, blog posts in that realm before. Uh, but the, the thing that just kept creeping into my mind, actually being forced into my mind, like a dowel being hammered uh Mm. through my ear is yeah is the play the crucible by arthur miller um and if you know anything about me uh this is because i am an 11th grade english teacher in new york state in which every 11th grade student as far as i'm aware has to read the crucible Mm -hmm. so i have spent a tremendous amount of time over the past three years with the crucible um but you know, my experience with it aside, I think that The Crucible is an absolutely fantastic play on its face. So when I was thinking about, okay, I want to write about theater, I want to write about drama, I want to write about plays, um, The Crucible, I was thinking about all these different plays to do. Um, my favorite musical ever, Hades Town, is in New York City right now. I was like, oh, I really want to write about Hades Town. I read all this stuff. And The Crucible just kept knocking just at my brain. And I was like, you know what? Relentless. I, I got to do this. So um, I went to, if you're from Rochester, you'll get this. If not, uh, you know, sorry. But I bought a giant uh, extra large pizza at Swan Dive with Sicilian Cupperoni and invited Sean over. And uh, we watched the. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder version of The Crucible mm. on TV and Excellent. devoured an entire pizza. And um, it was a wonderful time. Oh, yeah. And, thanks for the invite. Yeah, uh, Actually, you were invited. Oh, was I? Yes. Um, but, <laughs> Humbled. Um, the, Humbled. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you, you're a very busy man, so I understand. <laughs> oh, but um, oh. uh, anyway, the... Uh, that time watching the movie kind of outside of the context of school and outside of the pressure of me having to teach it, uh, I all of a sudden, you know, I, I almost saw the play in like a new light. And so all of a sudden the spark started flying and I was like, all right, I'm going to start this blog post. So, nice. um, so like 
Cody said, it's called Timeless Stories and Good Theater, Revisiting the Crucible. So the reason why I mentioned the revisiting part is not because I'm necessarily revisiting the Crucible uh, in this context, but because I am inviting all of you to revisit mm-hmm. the Crucible. Because you revisit it every year, three I periods do, a day. I do, every year. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and many times over the summer because people fail and I have to teach them over the summer too. But anyway, um, but the point is, um, unlike, so, so I'm, we're talking about timeless stories and good theater. There are many plays and many stories and many pieces of media where if you had to pick apart every minute detail about that thing, whatever it may be, even star Wars, probably if I did it multiple times a year, every year, multiple times a day, I am sure that you would get very tired and annoyed with that thing. But the Crucible has not become overdone for me yet. Mm. And I think that is testament to its greatness. So it's inexhaustible. Yes, inexhaustible. So instead, uh, well, I hope so, because I got to do it for another 27 <laughs> years. So, um, but anyway, um, so without belaboring this point more, um, using the Crucible as a jumping point, I really wanted to, this blog post isn't about the Crucible. It's about what makes a timeless story. And so using that as a jumping or a jumping point, I've really started to kind of ask myself, what is it that makes this inexhaustible, as Sean said? And um, it actually became pretty clear to me uh, as I started looking into it, kind of what elements begin to form the building blocks of a timeless story. Mm-hmm. So that's what the blog post is about. And I pretty pretty early on in the article... I answer it. I say, what makes a story enduringly great? What makes it timeless? And I, uh, I quote myself here. Mm-hmm. I believe the answer is as follows. And I said, a timeless story is beautiful, dynamic, and most importantly, founded on an enduring truth or reality that is not governed by the present moment. A timeless story is simply true. And the human beings experiencing it see themselves reflected in it, regardless of what time or culture they hail from. Mm-hmm. So that's a little weighty and a little clumsy, but I think the key points in that phrase is the fact that the story is founded on an enduring truth, an enduring reality, something mm-hmm. that is not only true in the context of that particular story, and also the fact that the reader, viewer, experiencer, whatever form of art it is, sees themselves reflected in it in a hu- in a very human way. Mm-hmm. So before I even delve, you know, more into that to sometimes the best way to see something in its full definition is to see its contrast. And, um, this is going to be, you know, kind of a niche thing, but it's, it's right at the, at the forefront uh, of my mind. (laughs) Thank you. No, but, um, so I was watching, so I'm a, I'm a, an amateur Harry Potter fan. I don't know if you guys like Harry Potter or the wizarding world, but, Mm -hmm. uh, I was watching the fantastic beasts spin-off movies with my wife over the past few days and I had never seen them before and I uh if you love the Fantastic Beast movies sorry and you can take it up with me later but um I was I can't imagine like any beloved saga that would like go back and oh, make please. prequels yeah 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 and then people like wouldn't like them as much as the original I can't imagine yeah is that yeah. what you're saying happened here yeah insert um sad Star Wars music here but um <laughs> All right. Um, Wait, we're looking for the right sound effect. We can't proceed until we get the wah, wah, wah. There we go. Star Wars. There we go. Um, yeah, tune in to our episode uh, on the rise of Skywalker. and Still our episode, reeling. Still reeling. Yes, and our episode from a year ago on uh, 
the last Jedi um, two years ago, rather. Oh, anyway, um, oh. so back oh, back boy. to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Mm. Um, oh, there goes gravity. <laughs> He's so mad, but he won't give up that easy. Okay, I'm so, sorry. Regarding the Fantastic Beasts spinoff movies, um, I couldn't get into them at all. And I, I, I'm one who loves, I love the Harry Potter movies. I love the Harry Potter books. So I have every reason to love these movies, I think. And I just couldn't get into them. And uh, after my wife and I both fell asleep during the sequel, The Crimes of Grindelwald, we were asking ourselves, why is it so hard for us who consider ourselves Harry Potter fans to get mm-hmm. into this? Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why, I think it was like a two-pronged reason why we couldn't get into it. I think that the uh, story, and I'm not going to pick apart these stories, but I think that this is just an example. We do not, um, the characters, I, I don't see myself reflected in any of those characters, and I don't see their stakes reflected in my life at all. And I think that um, one, so I'm using this as kind of a contrast right now, and it has made, you know, I saw had this thought after I finished this blog post, but mm-hmm. I think that it's made my points that I made in the blog post. I'm even more confident mm-hmm. about them now when I see that the thing that makes a story enduring is the fact that when you read that story, watch that story, whatever it may be, um, look at that painting, you know, whatever it is, you see yourself in it in some way, some, some elemental form of yourself. Mm-hmm. Deep. Yeah. That's good, man. I love this conversation that you started um, it is, it is such a hard question to answer, right? Like what makes a story timeless? And everyone, you know, when you embark on a creative journey like that, you want it to be timeless, but, uh, that doesn't happen every time. And so, um, I love that you use the crucible as an example. Uh, I wanted to ask Rich, one of your, one of your core points is that, uh, the villain in this story is an enduring human problem, not necessarily like a person, right? Like a, right creepy scary villain right? right it's it's a little more complicated than that so would you just flesh that out a little bit you say you write that the villains are the problems of hysteria greed hypocrisy and corruption rather than just an individual so uh tell me more about that um yeah so i think that at broadly i think that the more time i spend with literature and film and you know any sort of story narrative based art um it doesn't matter really who the characters are or what the setting is. Those Mm -hmm. are just like the frosting and the Mm -hmm. flowers on the cake. Right. Mm -hmm. But what really matters is what real existing enemy Mm -hmm. and real existing good Mm -hmm. are in the real world that you and I experience every day that, you know, end up being the stakes in this story. So I I know I'm speaking very vaguely right now, but yeah, no, but if you go back to the Harry Potter example, you, you know, you, on the surface, you look at Harry Potter and say, oh, people must like that story because it helps them escape reality. And they're just, you know, they like to live in a, a world of fantasy, but that's really superficial interpretation. I think, I mean, people like Harry Potter because they identify with uh, what it means to grow up and to have friends and to face danger and evil and, to, and to, in, tremendous themes of self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice. and right. like love for friends and family. Right. And so the, the setting, 
Yeah. That's a huge one there too. Yeah. And the setting yeah, destined is... Destined to do something. Yeah, destiny. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And those things are transcendent of the initial setting, which makes it fun. I mean, it's cool that it happens at Hogwarts. And, and, I, and this is a huge criticism of like things like Harry Potter. But I mean, we can see the fact that like there are tremendous parallels between the, the plot of Harry Potter and the plot of Star Wars and mm-hmm. the plot of other epic hero stories. And the and, Holy Bible. And the Holy Bible. <laughs> and, I, and I think that... Um, but in all seriousness, I think that like... That underlines our point even more that you could literally take the skeleton of the Harry Potter series and change the setting and change the characters and change, you know, the details and who falls in love with who. Mm -hmm. And it's an equally great story, Mm -hmm. which is why we see this story recycled in different contexts and it's still equally great. And um, yeah, but I think that the Crucible to like use that again as an example um, the Crucible takes place in the Salem Witch Trials, the historical time period. That adds a really awesome um, context and milieu to this story. But this story really doesn't need to take place in the Salem Witch Trials at all. And interestingly, that is Arthur Miller's whole point when mm-hmm. he wrote that play. Mm-hmm. So um, if you are not familiar with Arthur Miller, he's lar- he's considered by many critics to be the greatest American playwright of the 20th century. Um you know, famous for Death of a Salesman, All My Sons, and The Crucible are kind of his top three plays. Uh, married to Marilyn Monroe for a little bit, famous for that too. But um, the during his time, he was accused by his best friend and, uh, you know, kind of co-creative, uh, Ilya Kazan, of being oh, wow. a communist sympathizer and possibly a communist. Mm-hmm. Um, and... This was for Ilya Kazan's personal gain because with a name like Ilya Kazan, the McCarthyists thought he was a communist as well. Mm. Um, and so in order to get the heat off himself, he accused his best friend. And um, this is during the McCarthy Red Scare era in the 1950s. Mm. And Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible as an you, you know, he capitalized upon the moment of the Salem witch trials to tell his own story. So it, when you look at it, on a, well, not even a shallow level, but when you look at it on the first level of criticism of the Crucible, you're like, oh my goodness, this is actually an allegory about the McCarthy era in America mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Yes, it is, but it's actually an allegory for the human experience. Yeah, it because- doesn't even matter. Like, you could redo the Crucible, and believe me, I thought about it. You could redo <laughs> the Crucible in the 1950s. You could right. make a play about Arthur Miller and Elia Kazan uh-huh. and uh, Joseph McCarthy, and it'd be just as cool as the Crucible. Right. But the thing is, it it's really, and I don't even know if Miller intended this or not, but it's an allegory for what it's like to be a human mm-hmm. in a crucible. Mm. And, you know, if you're unfamiliar with what a crucible is, it's a vessel in which you can melt metal, mm-hmm. right? So under extreme, extreme heat, when you're on, the fire is on, how do humans react? And you look at any, you know, situation, any historical time period for the vast, you know, the 99% of the time people are going to react like they do in that story, like they did in the Salem witch trials, like they did in the 1950s. And I'm not going to talk about it here and now, but it's happening very similarly in our political landscape now. Mm -hmm. And I I think that uh, there's, you know, when people are put to the flames, they react in certain ways. And I think that's what the crucible highlights. Amazing. Um, It's hard to imagine the crucible story taking place without 
I, I don't know, the, the religious themes and the theology. Like, Miller was yes. not, to my knowledge, a Christian. Um, so I don't know. But yeah, he would not have called himself... He, he did not call himself right. a Christian. However, it's he did grow up being religiously educated. And he did his homework, and that's my yeah, point. Right, is like right, right. He, he was familiar. And so it's hard for me to imagine, like, oh, you could transplant that story outside of the context of theology because that was so important to the plot of the story. But that's an interesting conversation. Um, I just love that story, and I, I love the point you're making. The theology and the characters' strong... Christian beliefs as Puritans in the crucible mm-hmm. is a vehicle for the story, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a vehicle that, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a vehicle that allows the main characters who sacrifice themselves and make decisions that hurt them, it gives them a reason to do that. Like, why would a person ever make a decision that ended with their own death, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the Christian faith does that. But I think that Christian theology aside, I think that there are things like listener, whether you're a Christian or not, like I, I, I urge you to search within yourself. I think mm-hmm. that there are things that all of us know in our heart that are much more important than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And whether you're a person realities. of faith or not, there are things worth dying for. Mm-hmm. And I think that those things can be transplanted. I, I see what you mean. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Sean, hit, hit us with some uh, thought provoking question here. <laughs> One of the things that I was interested to hear your thoughts on, um, is that you near the end of the piece you brought up how as you attempted to process what makes a timeless story mm-hmm. you then contrasted that with the fact that you've received a lot of counsel from teachers and uh, maybe fellow writers perhaps yeah. that have said they uh, have kind of given you the antithesis of that and they've basically mm-hmm. said like write um, with a kind of more inward focused lens right um right what you know right yeah right what you know right what moves you and all these different things um why do you think that that is the case why are we giving that sort of advice so um, to people so i think this is a really complicated thing um mm-hmm. but and i'll tr- i'll try to answer it as best i can mm-hmm. so um i think that so just to kind of summarize um i uh, took have done a lot of creative writing courses like both in college and just on my own time and you know I've been in part of like some writers groups and directors groups for theater and time and time again overwhelmingly the advice that I've gotten in both writing and directing plays and also just writing stories like fiction or poetry um, is to only write what you know and only write from your own experiences and not to write like emotions that you haven't felt or things like that. Can I just jump in here? Yeah. I could imagine the devil's advocate for that position saying it could be a paralyzing thing to think I need to write a story that somebody 500 years from now would be interested in reading in or excuse Ooh, me, interested right. in reading. So I, I see why some people yeah, that's might a crippling amount of pressure. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Oh, people 500 years from now need to relate to the story. Oh, where do I start? And then you're just kind of, so I of can course. see the devil's advocate position. So. And, and, and this is, I think it's important to say, um, this is on a practical note. If you're talking about like, descriptive details in your story absolutely right from your own experience imagery yeah like if you're going to describe a kitchen like you got characters walking into a kitchen in an apartment look around your kitchen and describe intricate details about like the spatula on the counter and stuff like that because that grounds your reader Mm -hmm. in reality because you're talking Mm -hmm. from your own reality so in that Mm -hmm. in a on a um 
detail setting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because someone plane. else might have a different spatula, but their spatula is specific. And, and it's it's interesting too because when you read about a specific spatula and the specific smell of you know your mom's particular amount of garlic in the pasta sauce or whatever, mm-hmm. your the reader has a different spatula and a different pasta sauce, but they know it's real. You mm-hmm. can feel it. You're like, oh, that's a real sauce. That's a real yeah. spatula, mm-hmm. and it's not some vague like you know. There was a spatula on the counter. It's right. like, okay, you know, I, I have no investment in this. So it's specific, but in being specific, it's universal. Yes. So yeah. I and think it can that the allegorical important- other things too, right? Like people where when you describe a person in your story, people might not know that particular person, but they know people like that, yes. right? And when you describe a particular character well, people are like, yeah, I know somebody like that. That's like yeah. my experience reading Jane Austen's all of the novels of hers that I've read. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, that's somebody so, I know. So, mm-hmm. so you here's know. a crazy one too. And I'm going to ask you guys here present in the room if this has ever happened to you. But um, it's kind of a stereotype that it happens to like bookish high school girls. But I think it happens to all sorts of people. Um, have you ever like felt <laughs> romantically attracted to a book character? Well, sure. Her- Hermione. I didn't even know how to Perfect. say it. I didn't even know how to say Hermione. Her name. <laughs> Hermione. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, the thing is, the reason why we can actually develop romantic feelings for a f- completely fictional character is because the character is not completely fictional. They're mm-hmm. human and real. They just happen to be in the pages of a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so so that to, all that being said, it is very important to use what you truly know mm-hmm. when you are setting a, you know, a setting and creating character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But when you are creating theme and plot and and what i call in my classroom like the uh, we call them so i make science allegories right so i call them the heavy elements of literature mm-hmm. right so like the like you got all these other things you got setting you got character and whatever but the real drivers mm-hmm. are like what are the personalities of your main characters what are the themes that they are working within and what, and maybe like a motif, if you have a recurring motif in your story that comes up time and time again, that's gotta be universal. It's gotta be something that if, if your reader lives in Japan, they have to connect to that in the same way as a reader that lives in Kansas. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, Sean, would you just kind of ask your question again? Cause I, yeah. Like- so why have we gotten away from that perspective? Okay. Like, right. Why are we giving that advice to, to younger, to people who are trying to learn how to write or something? Okay. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I'm not going to go into all of them, but I think that, I think that one of the reasons is a practical one, mm-hmm. which is if you're a early writer, you're just kind of getting into your craft. It's, uh, it's kind of an instant, uh, you know, mistake, you're stepping in quicksand to try to write a story about something you've never experienced. And so, often requires a lot of research, right? Yes, you have to yes, go and you sure. have to research that and it's going to take a long time to put that together. Right. Like right yeah. now, if I wanted to write a story that took place in Imperial China, it would be an absolute tragedy because anyone who had experienced <laughs> China or was a scholar of Imperial China would be like, what is this guy talking about? So that is, hmm. you know, so on a practical sense, that makes sense. And if you're listening to this and you're a writer, like definitely write, you know, if you live in New Jersey and you've never left New Jersey, please put your story in New Jersey. You know what I mean? Like, that's cool. But I think that the, um, I think that the, and I, I appreciate professors and writers that have given me that, that advice. But I think on a, on a broader scale, the reason why in my article, I'm saying that kind of, we need to flip that narrative is because we are very concerned right now. And I think humans have always had this problem 
But I think in our present moment um, here in 2020, we are very, very concerned with the issues of our day. And we think we, we, we actually we are saying constantly in culture that anything that happened even five or 10 years ago is now irrelevant mm-hmm. because there was a different cultural climate at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the uh, or or certain people didn't have a voice at a certain time. Therefore, all the voices of that time are invalid, be, you know, or whatever that may be. And um, there's some some truth in that. But I also think that we we put too much value on the issues and pains and emotions in our moment. Lewis and I, calls that chronological snobbery. Mm. Oh, I'm that's gonna, great. I'm going to ignore all other eras in favor of my own. Oh my God. That's great. Cause that's mine happening. is the most important. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and advanced. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. I hadn't, I never heard that. I think that's exactly what I'm trying to say because if Snobbish. you imagine, if you imagine like, you know, take any historical time period and you are going to write a story in that time period and it's not about the human experience that's, you know, whatever. Sean, pick a time period for me. Uh, 1700s. Where? London. London. Okay. So there are there are human things happening in the 1700s in London, right? Yeah. But instead, if we're writing about the particular context of a particular economic drop or a particular... Um, Whatever. There's probably some disease racking London in sure. the 1700s, right? <laughs> See, or the thing fire is, or yeah, whatever, something. right? There's some plague, right? If we're writing, if we're writing specifically about that particular issue, that story is not going to stand over time. But if you use the issue of mm-hmm. some fire as economic drop, whatever, the the little ice age was in that time, right? So if we use that as a vehicle to talk about something that humans experience in every time in every place, then maybe voila, you got yeah. a timeless story, mm-hmm. friends. Uh, I, f- I think we could talk about this uh, ad nauseum for about a hundred years. This but podcast could be timeless. It could be timeless. It's <laughs> starting to feel like it could be. Um, and unfortunately, we've got we've got restrictions here. We've got spaghetti and meatballs brewing out there, uh, waiting for us. I don't know if you brew spaghetti or meatballs. Well, I feel but, like spaghetti and meatball. I mean, that's something specific to our moment. I don't know if yeah, you, you know, guys probably wouldn't understand. Later on, is going to connect with that. It's that's so something in our personal brewing experience. Them. How, yeah. It's just culturally However, my own. I bet you our listeners can imagine the feeling of knowing that dinner is right around the corner. Yes. Oh, thank yeah. you, Rich. Right. Thank you. Even if they don't have our specific spaghetti. An enduring yeah. principle, indeed. <laughs> so here's what I want to do um, before we wrap up here. Uh, Nate, you have a question for Rich, but really, I think we could all kind of just jump in um, and uh, throw in our two cents here about. The nature of a timeless story. So hit, sure. hit us, Nate. Yeah, so Rich, I love this blog post. It's great. And I think it does a really good job of laying out some key reasons why the crucible is a timeless story and why any story uh, is in fact timeless. If you look at kind of these major things that you've pulled out, these major aspects of a timeless story. But I, I wonder, you know, as a writer, we talked a little bit as a writer, you do you write about what you know? Do you try to create something that's enduring? can you really look at this list and try to write a story that then becomes 
timeless. Is, is that kind of something that you can embark upon and actually construct a timeless story from the outset? Or is that something that you really only find out in retrospect? Like, oh, actually, wow, it looks like I, I wrote a timeless story. Yeah, no. L- like Sean said earlier, like the pressure of writing a story, like, all right, yeah. I'm going to write a story right now that in 500 years, they're still going to love it. Like that, that is an impossible, <laughs> that's yeah, that's so an confident. impossible pressure. Right. And, and I also, and I think that a lot of authors and filmmakers and stuff that attempt to do that actually fail harder because mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. mindset. But yeah. I think that, um, so when you're reading, um, my blog post, I think that I I'm taking the perspective of kind of a critic, not from a writer. So sure. I would, so please don't use this as a how to list of how to write a timeless story. Mm-hmm. Rather it's when you're looking at stories that you've already experienced why are the ones that feel like so timeless to you? What makes them that way? I think is what I'm looking at. But yeah. um, for me to answer that, and I'd love to hear the rest of you guys um, sound off on this too. But I think that you can't predict in our present time what stories or art or whatever will end up standing the test of time. Because I think that in a lot of ways is circumstantial and whatnot. But I think that we, we coined this phrase like the test of time. But mm-hmm. I think that's very real. And I think that yeah. there are, um, I think that if you put the pressure on yourself to create something that will withstand the test of time, you are setting yourself up for some disappointment, perhaps. But like we've been using the word human and we've been using the word truth. And I think if you want to create art and you pour yourself into it and you make the foundations of the story capital t truths Mm -hmm. and and you know my best advice and for how to find truth like what are these points of truth that are going to exist in the future i mean we have promises in scripture that those things will be true for all time Mm -hmm. the line will never change Mm -hmm. so if you're looking for something that is going to be true even after the apocalypse of 2030 you know uh, you know, when the people rebuild society and they're finding the manuscript that you wrote. <laughs> Amazing. Um, when they find the manuscript that you wrote and it's dusty and under or whatever. <laughs> yep. If it's based on biblical truth, chances are pretty good that it's still going to apply. And you don't yeah. mean it's explicitly biblical and the characters are named Paul and... Peter. No, not at all. I, I mean, I mean yeah. biblical truth, meaning the fact that sacrificing oneself for others is one of the most emotional things a human could possibly experience. That'll, yeah. that'll always be beautiful to you, no matter where you are. Exactly. It. Yeah. Sort of a, a deep alignment with reality, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. I think it's worth bringing up this... C.S. Lewis quote. I know I'm bringing up C.S. Lewis again, but I think he agrees with you. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, he says, even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring tuppence about how often it has been told before, you will nine times out of 10 become original without ever having noticed it. Mm. And so Lewis literally says that, right? Tell the truth. And that's actually the way to be original. And according to your blog, the way to be timeless. I love that. And yeah. to, to be practical with it, I guess my tuppence on this is... Tuppence. What, is that what they say? Is that how they say it, Nate? Yeah, they yeah. say tuppence. Haven't you seen... Uh, Do they say tuh? Like tuh, tuh yeah. turtles. Mm-hmm. Like, haven't you seen uh, Mary Poppins? Yeah, Mary Toppins Poppins. a bag? Oh my gosh, this is new to me. I don't know if you guys are playing an elaborate prank on me or if Mary this is... I don't know, Sean, you're British. What are you... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Jonathan. All right, so... 
But I, I, I only, think I only purchased things that were four pence. So I don't know how you <laughs> oh, say high roller, high roller here. Um, but Nate, to your to your point, and to uh, to Clive's point, um, indeed. Uh, all his good friends call him Jack. He told me to call him Clive. He did not, you know. He, I, we're not we're not close like so he that. doesn't like you at all. No, he does not like <laughs> I'm me. Surprised. I know. Um, me too. I'm. I don't. I don't get it. Clive Staples. That was easy. I know. Um, but but what he says actually, I I know that quote and it's encouraged me a lot over the years as I kind of uh, mess with writing here and there. Uh, the pressure of having to create something not on, not even timeless. Like let's just create something publishable good you know <laughs> yeah, like something decent yeah something good. Like something People good. Like, yeah and um that in itself is enough mm. crippling pressure and i just am reminded of the importance of revision like oh, write yeah. something that is true and that you actually care about like don't try to be super artistic and like smarter than you are write something you care about and that's true and do it well and then once you've written a bad copy revise it yeah. And this point of revision, I think, is maybe noteworthy or in this conversation. If you're, or if you're an actor, like uh, advice that actors get all the time is, if you don't actually care about the situation that your character is in, there's no way that the audience will believe it. Mm. I don't care how good you are at at making yourself cry or whatever. If you don't feel sad for your character, people will be able to tell. Mm. Yeah. All right, Sean. Any closing thoughts on this? Uh... No more British words to uh, contribute to this conversation. <laughs> if you respond, it has been a British accent. I think I think when the Lord took C.S. Lewis, he became more powerful than we could possibly imagine oh because he has come up uh, so commonly in our forefront discussions. Great you might guy, say though. that C.S. Lewis is timeless. He is timeless. You might man. say that. He is timeless. That would be correct. Final thoughts, boys? I, I think it's neat, even as we have this conversation, to think about the fact that you know, Rich wrote this entry about the crucible, which is something that he is personally invested in and personally really cares about and, and has read and taught often. And so I think that it's, it's kind of interesting to think that even in kind of the microcosm of writing this blog post, that's something that he deeply cares about. And there was even the process of revision where like mm -hmm. Sean's our blog editor. And yep. th this is the stuff that we go through on a regular basis. And hey, so that's pretty that meta because right. even if you've yeah. never read The Crucible, I still think that you could, you know, I'm patting myself on the back here a little bit, but I still think you could get a lot out of the post even if you yeah. know nothing about The Crucible. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Because the work's been put in. That's right. Well, uh, friends, thanks for listening. We've got, uh, we've got dinner waiting for us. Otherwise, we would just keep chatting here. But uh, if you enjoy this podcast, please uh, leave us a rate and a review. Um, five star uh, only, please. At least. At least <laughs> yes. five stars. Six stars if you can pull it off. We will uh, accept five. We will accept five. Um, if you don't enjoy this podcast... Don't um, rate us, please. Or, or just fake it. You know, fake it till you make it. Do me a solid. Um, because, uh, yeah, we're, we're loving doing this, and uh, we love chatting with each other and with you guys. So sincerely appreciate you listening. Um, until next time, keep enjoying excellent art to the glory of God.